Hello everyone, I'm Bella. And I'm Olivia. And we are prevention educators for New Directions, the Domestic Violence Shelter and Rape Crisis Center of Knox County. You're listening to our podcast, Table Talks. We hope that listening to this podcast gives you an inside look into the world of domestic violence and sexual assault. Throughout this series, you will hear from individuals from all walks of life, from preventionists and advocates to survivors themselves and many other allies. Thank you for joining us and enjoy the podcast. Due to the sensitive nature of this episode and the subjects discussed, viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Table Talks. Today, we have a special guest with us, Emily Morrison. Thank you for joining us and being here today. And I'm actually going to throw it over to you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the agency you represent and the position you hold within this agency. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I am the Community Relations Coordinator for the Mental Health and Recovery Board for Looking in Knox County. Um, We are a governmental board that provides funding for mental health and addiction services. So um, we are a little bit different. We help provide uh, services for those who have Medicaid, for those who have no way to pay, and people who are in absolute crisis situations. Um, So our main goal is to make sure that people have access to services no matter what their situation is. Um, My job is to educate people about what we do and to do some general mental health education, do some general addiction education so that people kind of understand what some of the resources are, what the processes look like, and how to reduce stigma for those looking to seek treatment. Um, I've been with the board for about three years and I work with a number of coalitions. Uh, KSAT is local, so I help work with KSAT. And then um, I also do work with the Suicide Prevention Coalition here in Knox County. So in a nutshell, that's that's what we do. Yeah, And that's a lot of great work. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned suicide prevention, and we're going to be talking about that a little bit today. So what exactly is QPR, and what can you tell us about these steps and what goes on with this process? Yeah, QPR is an evidence-based program. It is a two-hour-long class. And what we do is we talk about what is suicide, what does it look like in Ohio, what does it look like locally, um, how do you look at somebody and determine whether they might be suicidal or not Mm -hmm. because they don't always verbalize Mm -hmm. uh, what they're feeling. So we look at some of those warning signs and we teach you to notice the things that might be a little bit off. And then we talk about how to ask the question uh, to get somebody to start talking about it. And then we talk about how to talk them into receiving help in a way that's appropriate and then where those resources are so that you're not totally responsible for somebody else's well-being. You know, we want professionals to be responsible for somebody else's well-being. So, um, you know, we teach people how to set boundaries. We teach them how to take care of themselves in the, those situations because we certainly don't want anybody else being harmed in a dangerous situation but if there's a chance to save somebody's life I think we could all agree that that's what we want to do yeah. yes absolutely and I remember when you came in and did a QPR training with our staff and I just remember sitting there and it was so much great information mm-hmm. like I feel like you just you talked about everything you possibly could in that small window of time that we had but it's 
really great information, very useful information, and it's very important work that you do. So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and you had said that you talk about suicide and like its prevalence in Ohio as well as locally. Mm -hmm. And I'm just kind of interested, do you know the numbers of suicide within Ohio, specifically in Knox County? Specifically in Knox County, I, I do have those numbers. Without my slides, I don't know Ohio's. Okay. <laughs> um, but, okay, so in Knox County, typically, in the last 10 years, we have had 77 suicides from, well, from 2019 back um, okay. 10 years, according to um, ODH. Mm -hmm. So it averages less than 10 per year, and that's, that's kind of where we're sitting. Unfortunately, this year, right now, in August, we are sitting at nine oh, uh, completed wow. suicides in Knox County. Um, and while that's tragic, some people might hear less than 10 and say, oh, we don't have a problem. Mm -hmm. um, but we also know that according to 911 data, according to hospital data, and 211 calls that there are an average of 30 to 40 attempts or threats made every month. Mm. Um, so that is a lot of people that mm -hmm. are in crisis. And of course there's going to be repeat calls. There, there are people who are in long-term crisis and have a hard time um, dealing with their situation, but the majority of them are not. So mm -hmm. we know we have a large population that needs help, that needs services, needs connection and um, it's kind of tricky to figure out how to reach out uh, yeah. to those people. Um, so if we talk about kids um, specifically, we can look at pride data. So pride is done every three years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the 2019 pride data, um, it says that 9.5% of the students, and I believe there were 2,025 students that were surveyed across the county, so 9.5 of them had thought about suicide often or a lot. Oh, wow. um, and if we get into those that think about it seldom or sometimes mm -hmm. because they're thinking about it, um, that percentage rises from 9.5 to 33.8. So we have a lot of students yeah. that are in schools that are thinking about it at least sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that's worrisome. Um, those who are thinking about it a lot probably need connection with services pretty quickly, mm -hmm. but even thinking about it sometimes can be a risk because we know kids are impulsive. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we know about kids, and we talked about this a little bit in QPR, is that for every, um, every youth death, there are 200 attempts. Hmm. Wow. So there are a lot more attempts that we probably don't know about with yeah. our youth um, that... Uh, we need to figure out how to reach them and yeah. how to get into the schools a little mm -hmm. bit better for some active suicide uh, prevention. And I know you guys are doing signs of suicide. We're doing sources, sources of strength. strength. Yeah, yeah. Sources of strength. That's yeah. right. So that's such a great program. Yeah, we're excited. Yeah, we are. And it's it's really interesting too because it's when I when I when we first started the training, I thought it was going to be all we were going to be talking about was suicide, mm -hmm. but it's more of that upstream. Like building protective, protective factors, factors yeah. which mm -hmm. is, which is really interesting, mm -hmm. and I think is a unique tie. Yes. Into the training too, which is cool. And I think also, I never realized how prevalent the thought of even thinking yeah. about suicide is, or even the attempt of thinking about suicide. But even on the other side of that, how important it is to talk about mm -hmm. suicide. And I know that it's a really hard topic to talk about, but 
you know, even the simple thought of asking a question and showing people like you're there for them and that there are resources that you can either turn to or be guided towards that's really important, especially in today's society. Right. Do you think that um, with COVID and like all the um, virtual learning and quarantining and that stuff, do you think that that probably played or plays a role in those percentages or so these percentage percentages would have been before COVID okay so they're pre-COVID so it will be interesting to see mm-hmm. when the pride survey goes out again how that fluctuates yeah um, and I think that's something we should look really hard at because I think kids are suffering um, just from the unknowns from the mm-hmm. isolation from you know, they're they're more geared towards their social media now. We mm-hmm. know that there's a lot of bullying that happens yes, there. Absolutely. So um, they've been connected to devices a lot more than we probably would readily let them because what else is there to do? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So um, it'll it'll be interesting to see what the Pride data says. Um, the other thing that was interesting about the Pride data is when you look at students who are using. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have alcohol and marijuana specifically. That's obviously the most that the kids are going to use the most because it's what they can get access to the easiest. Yeah. Um, but if you look at the suicidal ideation rates um, amongst kids who are using alcohol, 51% of students are using alcohol have thought about suicide mm-hmm. and uh, 35% of students who have used marijuana have thought about suicide and we know that there is a correlation between substance use because of lower inhibitions and mm-hmm. the impulsive the, the impulsivity of kids mm-hmm. um, yeah. to be able to complete a suicide so you know those who are using are actively thinking about it and probably a little more in danger yeah. That's a large percentage. Mm-hmm. That surprises me, if I'm being honest. I mean, it makes sense when you explain it, but when you said, what was it, 51? 51% of students using alcohol. That's a, that's hefty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And when we're talking about using substances and alcohol, I know in our training something we talked about too is self-harm. Mm-hmm. So can you touch a little bit on that and if this means that an individual is suicidal or is this just another warning sign that we're seeing as individuals? So that, that one's a little tricky. So mm-hmm. self-harm can be a warning sign that somebody is having suicidal ideation. Um, where it gets tricky is that self-harm could actually be preventing somebody from completing a suicide or attempting a suicide. Okay. And that's where it gets really uncomfortable because we don't want to see anybody harming themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that if somebody is self-harming, they are in such a state of distress mm-hmm. that that is one of their coping mechanisms, albeit a, a bad coping mechanism. Um, so the best way, if you have a child that is self-harming, Um, to combat that is to try to remove as many harmful objects from them as possible and talk to them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, not grounding them, not yelling at them for it. Try to be understanding and figure out what the problem is because until the problem is fixed, Mm -hmm. the self-harm is not going to be fixed. Mm -hmm. Um, Another way to combat it is through um, talk therapy so that they can learn coping skills that are healthy coping skills to help them move away from those harmful coping skills. Um, The problem with self-harm is that you can't have a group of kids 
have group therapy together and talk about their problems um, when they're self-harming because they teach each other how to do it. Mm. Um, We've seen that in the middle school, one of the middle schools locally, it kind of spread and Mm. they were teaching each other how how to do that and some kids were actually self-harming at school. So it, it become, it's a really tricky situation. Um, if you are making them feel so ashamed about it and removing privileges and punishing and that sort of thing, they may feel hopeless and that they have no way to cope with it, no way to deal with it, and they may actually attempt, so it could be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you've got somebody that's self-harming, you probably need to get some professional um, clinical help involved so that you can teach those coping skills and move them away from that. Yeah. So I think that kind of actually tackles our next question. Um, But if you want to go a little bit more in depth or just kind of sum up, um, what advice do you have for a parent who might have a child who's self-harming? So other than what I've said, I'm going to say Mm self-care. I'm a parent of a child who used to Mm self-harm and I didn't think it was ever going to end. And it is so hard. It's easy for me to tell you, don't freak out, don't punish, don't, Mm -hmm. don't do these things. It's very easy to be clinical about it and say, these are the steps you should follow. But as a parent, it is exhausting. It is worrisome. It is something that I can't wrap my head around it, even though I can read a book and I understand Mm -hmm. what it says. I understand it. Um, to, to know that my child was doing it. It was like, why are you doing this? Why, why is this happening? You know, what do we do to stop it? And it took, it took a lot of intervention, um, to get her to move away from that. And I think we're in a really good place now. Mm -hmm. So that's really good. Um, but that self care as a parent who is dealing with a child who has mental health issues that they're trying to work Mm -hmm. out is really important because there for a while I was exhausting myself. I was up all night. I was, you know, checking on her all the time and, Mm -hmm. and things like that. And it became such, so much harder for me to do because I was tired and I was cranky and my temper was short and I wasn't eating enough and that sort of thing. So I really had to stop and start taking care of myself to be able to take care of her so that would be my best advice for parents who are Mm -hmm. dealing with this is get professional help to help you and take care of yourself during that time and that's awesome advice and like it's so i think it's so awesome that you can first that she's in a good place that's great that's very i'm happy to hear that um and i think it can be hard too like if we're talking about suicide, you know, or self-harming or anything mm-hmm. like that, it's easy for us to be like, well, like, don't freak out. Take care of yourself. Yeah. But if a parent's hearing that from two people that don't have kids, yeah. it's like, well, you don't, you don't get it. Like, you don't know what this is like. You, you can't empathize really with, with what I'm dealing with or what I'm going through. And so the fact that you can approach it from that perspective or mm-hmm. a similar perspective I think is really important. Yeah. So. And, and the other thing I would say about getting um, help is the first therapist that you go to may mm-hmm. not be the right one. Yeah. You know, I, I hate to hear people get discouraged because their child doesn't click with the first therapist mm-hmm. that they go to. And I know it can be hard to find people that are in network or local mm-hmm. and work with your time schedule and all of that. Um, but the first one may not be the right fit. And so, you know, if, if you, if you hear your child saying, 
I don't like them. They just talk at me or I'm not, I'm not understanding and this isn't working. Um, you know, forcing them to do therapy that doesn't work may prevent them from doing therapy in the future if they feel like that's all it's going to mm-hmm. be like. Um, so really taking the time and trying to find somebody that they can connect with that suits what the child needs. There, there are many different types of therapy, and they may not respond to one as well as they do the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been a learning process for us. Um, but it's been worthwhile. Yeah. It's awesome to hear, too, even through this whole process, whether that's with going through your experience or other experiences you've seen with other students or individuals, you're allowing voices to be heard. Mm-hmm. And that is so awesome, one, from a youth perspective, but just even somebody going through something as hard as suicide ideation or even attempting suicide, feeling as if their voice is heard. So. Mm-hmm thank you for doing the work that you do and even just being here today and spreading light on this too yeah one of the things we always talk about is recovery is individual Mm -hmm. um you know mental health recovery is different than addiction recovery you know with addiction we look at recovery as sobriety and so there's a marker there that okay somebody is sober or they're they're no longer addicted um then they've reached recovery they're moving on with their life Um, Mental health issues sometimes can be Mm long-lasting, and so we have to figure out what recovery looks like, and and that doesn't mean that it goes away. We know sometimes depression and anxiety go away. About 50% of the time, somebody has a bout, and and then they recover from it, and they never deal with it again, but the Mm -hmm. other 50% are going to have to deal with it throughout their life from time to time or long-term. And so recovery then is very individual. What therapies work for Mm -hmm. you? What self-care works for you? You know, it's not all bubble baths and candles, (laughs) you know. Very true. So um, it it becomes very individualized. And that's that's the only way it's going to work is to hear those voices. Because if something's not working for somebody, trying to fit that square peg into that round hole Mm -hmm. is just going to be a fight for everybody. And nobody wins. Yeah, that's very true. And I, I sometimes wish it was as simple as bubble baths and candles. Yeah. But yeah. Unfortunately. Well, I, fortunately. I, 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 wish there, I wish there was a magical path that everybody could walk. And we could say, if you do these things this way, everything mm-hmm. comes out grand on the other side. Yeah. And unfortunately, we have not figured out what that magical path yeah. is. Maybe one of these days. Something you've showed through. Something you've showed though through this conversation is you know the path may not be magical, but there are people here, there are resources here that you know will meet you where you are and try to help you to the best of their abilities. And if this doesn't work, we'll try to help in another way. So yeah. yes, that's amazing. Yeah, and if anybody has questions um, about the resources and things. I know sometimes, um, if you go to the ER for assessment, you know, they're very clinical about it and they don't always have that warm handoff to resources. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what the board is for. We're, we're here to help connect people to those things. Um, there are local providers, the, the health department, has a mental health clinic at their FQHC, mm-hmm. so that's a good resource. We have a lot of private providers here. Um, there's some telehealth here, mm-hmm. and then you know we have BHP, which is in our system of care that we help pay for. So we do have resources locally, um, and it gives people options, which is really yeah. good. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Resources are important, that's for sure. Um, and so there might be people listening to this who 
may be concerned about somebody who might be battling mental health concerns or suicide, uh, suicidal ideation. So how long should someone be concerned about somebody who has vocalized suicidal ideation? It's a really good question. So if somebody has vocalized that they are contemplating suicide, mm-hmm. um, they have a plan, they, they know what they want to do, um, you need to stay with them. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a, a case where somebody needs to supervise that person until they can get clinical help. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, the impulsivity for an adult to want to attempt a suicide is anywhere between 14 minutes and three days. Okay. So there may be a window of time that somebody needs to stay with them until they can connect with services. And mm-hmm. sometimes due to bed unavailability or um, the ER discharging them or something like that, they may still be in that danger window that somebody needs to kind of keep an eye on them. Um, and it gets kind of tricky. If, if you identify that somebody is um, suicidal and you're not the person that can stay with them, it's really important to find somebody that's safe, that they consider safe, mm-hmm. um, to talk to and find somebody to hand them off to. So that warm handoff into somebody that can watch them and into resources is always really, really important. Um, but that danger zone that QPR teaches is between 14 minutes and three days that somebody okay. may have that impulsivity. Usually it doesn't last um, so long. Once you can get somebody talking about it, once you can instill some hope in them and mm-hmm. you can talk to them about resources and get them to agree to get some help, um, that's going to lessen quite a bit. Um, but that that is the danger window that we talk about. And then what about, because I know with like teenagers and youth nowadays, like texting is really big or even like social media messaging or Snapchatting. So would that kind of delegation piece be a big player in that situation if somebody expressed suicidal ideation over, like not in person? So you mean if a child expresses it to another child? Yes. Okay. So we, we don't teach QPR under 18 because we okay. never want to make a minor responsible for somebody else's life. Got it. That's kind of the way we look at that. So what we would instruct youth to do is always tell an adult that okay. they trust. Yeah. Um, and that that's never a secret. Mm-hmm. Um, a student feeling suicidal or thinking about suicide is never a secret that you keep. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to tell somebody. And, you know, that, that friend may get mad at you. That friend may never talk to you again. You know, they're, they're, I'm not going to say it's not without consequences, but it may save a life. So we always yeah. say, tell an adult. And, um, you know, that's why we want to teach everybody QPR. Yeah. Yeah. If we can teach all of the adults, then when a student goes to an adult, then we know that they're going to know what to do and they're mm-hmm. going to say the right things and go through the right process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually remember when I was in, I think I was in sixth grade, one of my friends had expressed suicidal ideation and like being in sixth grade you don't know what to do especially when this sort of thing isn't talked about um and I remember telling my guidance counselor at my school about it and somehow my friend found out and they after that wanted nothing to do Mm -hmm. with me and it was sad you know it was sad to say goodbye to a friendship but at the same time like it is one of those things where I would have rather that person been safe. Right. Then, and if that means that I don't get to be your friend anymore, then 
that's okay, but you're still here. Yeah, it is hard, and you know, and that's that's a conversation that parents mm-hmm. need to have with kids. Yeah. There, there is the myth that we talk about that if you talk about suicide, it's going to plant that idea in somebody's head, mm-hmm. and that's not the case. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're not going to mention the word suicide and explain what to do, and then all of a sudden they're going to, you know, obsess over it. That's not mm-hmm. something that happens. Um, either somebody's going to think about it because they're they're struggling. Or they're not mm-hmm. um, and so having those conversations with your kids I think really empowers them to know that they have that safe space mm-hmm. and you know I know that talking to my daughter about if these things happen you have to tell somebody made her feel like she, I was a safe space when she was struggling to come talk to me so mm-hmm. it's gonna open up multiple pathways with you and your child to have those conversations if they feel like you are a safe place to have them. Absolutely. I think you've given a lot of good tips for <laughs> parents and adults and yeah. that yeah. sort of thing. And in, for instance, the Sources of Strength material and mm-hmm. programming, it talks about how important it is to have peers linked with trusted adults because right. it's creating that safe environment mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, it, there's a saying that says it only takes one person to believe in you. So having that one trusted adult, whether that's a parent, a caregiver, a teacher, somebody they know they can go to, mm-hmm. again, like you said, it really does open up doors. It does, and it's one of those really strong protective factors mm-hmm. that can really save somebody. Another question that we have for you are, what are some other warning signs of suicidal behavior that you see, and do you have any other recommendations on how somebody should intervene if they're witnessing suicidal ideation, or they have a friend who is going through something and they disclose this to them? So that's a really in-depth question, and I'm going to say take a QPR class. (laughs) Um, You know, the classes are free. They are two hours long. We pack a lot of information in it. You get a booklet to take home with you. Um, you know, if you're concerned about somebody, certainly look up, you can look up warning signs online. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of behavioral clues, a lot of verbal clues, a lot of verbal clues that, um, you can pick up on. Um, but really come have a QPR class, come have a conversation because I hope you guys felt like the class was a conversation. Yeah, Absolutely. it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and that's the best way to do it because it does no good for me to just talk at you. Mm-hmm. If you've got real life situations that you want to talk about and we can work through some things, mm-hmm. you know, that's the way people learn best. And so if you're concerned about somebody, um, or if you just want to know what to look for because you have a friend or a child or something like that, then take a QPR class. Uh, we offer them for groups of five or more. And they're free. They're, they're part of what we provide to the public. And if someone was looking to take a QPR class, how would they get in contact with you? Or how would they reach out in order to get this class and receive these services? So they can call the board and uh, get a hold of me that way. Or you can send me an email, emorrison at mhrlk.org, and get a hold of me and we'll, we'll schedule one. Awesome. And we recommend it. It was great. A lot of really awesome information. Um, and I think I can speak for all of us when I say that. Yeah. And then really quickly, um, before we let you go, I wanted to hear, I know you had mentioned kind of in your introduction that you were also a part of the Suicide Prevention Coalition. Mm-hmm. So if you could kind of talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So if anybody is interested in um, trying to help us prevent suicide, um, we have a Suicide Prevention Coalition here in Knox County. 
and we partner with a lot of agencies here. We partner with you, we partner with New Directions. Um, the Sheriff's Office, local law enforcement, the Health Department, um, the VA office, we have a lot of local partners and we did a community um, evaluation as to the effectiveness of what we're doing and learned a lot about what the community wants and so we went through a process where we developed a community plan to help reach out to people who are in those attempt and threat calls mm -hmm. to let them know about local resources. Um, we host a 5K race to raise awareness and remember those that we've lost. Um, we support uh, lost survivors through grief groups, through hospice. We have several groups going right now. And um, we have a plan to spread QPR and train more trainers throughout the county. That's awesome. I love hearing that. So and then we need volunteers. Yeah, for sure. And then is that 5K coming up by chance? September 18th. September 18th. Mm -hmm. All right. Awesome. Well, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you for coming here and taking the time out of your day to come talk to us. And just over all the work that you do, it's really awesome. And it's incredibly important. So thank you. Thank you for everything that you do. Um, and thank you to everyone who tuned in to listen today. Please stay tuned for what else we have in store on social media. Thanks, everybody. Bye, everybody. Thank you.